0: We're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 12, to turn there in a copy of God's Word, 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel's Farewell Address, as it is titled in my uh, English Standard Version, I'm not sure um, if you have, you know, NIV or King James, if it gives a little title there, but in the ESV, This is Samuel's farewell address. That's a bit of a misnomer. These are not the last words of Samuel. He's not about to die. That happens in chapter 25, nor is he retiring or quitting his post. He will continue to serve an important function uh, in the uh, nation as God's prophet. But there is a transitional aspect to this speech. He is helping the people uh, to think through... um, and to to be prepared for what life is going to look like now that they'll have a king, uh, now that they'll have a king, um, they're not used to that uh, uh, life under a king. They're used to life under various leaders, judges, prophets, such as Samuel. So this is the first time since they've entered the promised land that they have a king. And we are picking up right where we left off at the end of chapter eleven. Uh, remember, verse twelve started this kingdom renewal ceremony. Chapter 12 is part of that. This, is, this speech from Samuel is part of renewing the kingdom, uh, renewing the commitment, renewing the covenant with God, and the focus is this. How will you live now that you have a king? How will you live now that you have a king? That's the question that kind of underlies all that Samuel has to say in this chapter, and uh, I'll give you the answer uh, right from the get-go. How should they live now that they have a king the same way they were always meant to live? Nothing has changed. God still calls them to obedience and uh, to righteousness. So that's what uh, we're going to see today. That's what we'll see is demanded of us as well. So here the word of God as it comes to us from 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I'll restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness. Who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel... "...and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, "'No, but a king shall reign over us,' when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you've chosen, for whom you've asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain... And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we've added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, from, do turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king." So as we see, the speech from Samuel culminates with this call of obedience, a demand for continual obedience. That's how it ends, but we want to walk our way through it, turning back to verse uh, 1 to see how he gets there. There's four main themes, main sections to this speech. It begins with him vindicating past leadership, vindicating past leadership, and first he refers to his own leadership. You see verses 1 through 5, Samuel sets the stage for his speech by getting the people to acknowledge uh, that he was a faithful leader for them. He was not inept like Eli. He was not corrupt like Eli's sons or even his own sons. Um, and in particular, it seems that he's hinting uh, that he never once did the things that God warned the king that they would have would do. If they got a king like the nations, he would act in a certain way. Do you remember what he says in chapter 8? Uh, Is that the king, if you set a king over here, he's going to take Take, take from you. And what does Samuel say? I never took your donkeys. I never took your oxen. I never took your money. And the people can't deny it. They say, no, this is right. Lord's a witness that you were a faithful leader. It's a wake-up call to them that under God's prior arrangement, they had a just and righteous leader. But more than vindicating himself, Samuel's interested in vindicating God. He wants to exonerate God's reputation, as it were, And he does this by reminding them of some of the wonderful ways that God's cared for and provided and even rescued his people in times of trouble. Uh, That's verse 7. Look there. He says, Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he's performed for you and for your fathers. Now, isn't that interesting? What's interesting about that verse? In a little while, Samuel's going to talk about pleading to the Lord, but right now he says, I first need to plead with you. And he says, you just need to just stand still for a minute. Quit moving. Just, just be quiet for a moment that I can persuade you of something. What does he want to persuade them of? What's he pleading with them to see that your God is good? He's preaching to them, right? Uh, He, he's, He's saying that there's nothing more important for them than to be still and hear the declaration of God's righteousness, God's faithfulness, God's goodness. There is nothing more important for you this day than to sit there and be still. By that, I don't mean that you're not moving. I mean that you're actually listening, that your heart is quieted. You're receiving what God is saying to you. And what do you hear then? God declaring his righteousness. God declaring his goodness. God proving to you that he has never once failed his people. That's... That's real and true preaching, declaring the righteous deeds of the Lord. That's what preachers do over and over again, week in and week out. They get up and they say the same thing. And why do we need to hear the same thing? Well, what does Samuel say in verse 9? We forget, right? This is what the Lord's done. And then he says in verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God. Well, we're no different. We're no different. So Samuel is is giving something of a spiritual realignment here. Some of you know the great relief that is found in the uh, chiropractor's uh, office. You know, you turn your neck the wrong way, you slept um, on your side in some kind of funky way, and things just aren't right. Whatever it is, you don't know. It just needs to be fixed. So what do you do? You go to the uh, chiropractor for an adjustment, and the chiropractor's job is to put things back the way they're meant to be, right? To realign the spine, um, to readjust. Well, that's what Samuel's attempting to do here. That's what preachers are meant to do, to offer a spiritual adjustment, a spiritual realignment. What we need in our lives is to put things back the way they're supposed to be. And that means putting God up here and putting ourselves down here. Putting God up here and putting ourselves down here. Uh, it's recovering the creator creature distinction He's Lord, I'm servant. He's God, I'm not. I'm the helpless sinner, but he's the God who is mighty to save. So many of our, our woes, our worries in life uh, would be cured by remembering all the righteous deeds that the Lord has done for us. Friends, remember that God's arm is not too short to save. Remember that he has the world in his hands and that includes you. Remember that he controls you, and he controls with care. In the case of Israel, Samuel highlights two righteous deeds. The first is their rescue from Egypt, verse 8. When Jacob, or Israel, another name for Israel, went to Egypt, the Egyptians oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought, uh, who brought them out of Egypt. Brought the fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So God knew, at that time, the right people to appoint in order to rescue the nation. Likewise, when they get into the land, into the promised land, and they are harassed by the Philistines, the people that are living there, um, God sends them the right leaders that they need. And what Samuel basically does is he just gives a synopsis of the book of Judges in verse 11. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak Barak, and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies. In essence, he's just citing the book of Judges as, as a compilation of examples of God's righteous rescues. Jerob is another name for Gideon, by the way. It's only mentioned once in Judges, but that's who that's a reference to. Uh, You remember the story of uh, Barak. Uh, In Hebrew, it actually reads uh, Badan. And so if you have certain Bible translations will have Badan, but that's a reference to Barak. And uh, there's Jephthah, and then he even speaks of himself. Samuel is the last judge. And basically what he's saying is that God's never left you without a Savior, I want to say that to you right now. God has never left you without a Savior. There's never been a moment where there hasn't been one who is ready and willing to rescue you. Never a moment. And and that comes home to Israel through these leaders that have been appointed from Moses the whole way to Samuel. And it all shows that the Lord knows what he's doing. It makes me think of 2 Peter 2.9. Here's a verse that you can memorize, a verse you should memorize, but it's, it's short and it's sweet. And it will come for you. Here it is, 2 Peter 2, 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. This is his business. This is what he does. And Israel's saying, we need a king. We need somebody else to do it. We don't like the way God does it. This is what God does. There's nobody better at rescuing the godly from trials than our God. Second Peter 2, 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. Samuel vindicates Israel's past leadership, namely the Lord himself. That's the first thing. In doing that, he does a second thing. He confronts their persistent sin. That's the second thing. He confronts persistent sin. Vindicates past leadership, confronts persistent sin. They go together because what's the point he's making? He's saying, even in light of all that God's done for you, you keep rejecting him. You, you forget, you rebel, you worship false gods, you complain that things aren't good enough. They complain that they have a deficiency in leadership. And now we're brought to the events of the previous chapter. Look with me at verse 12, please. Verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, that's what we read about in chapter 11, came against you, the people in Jabesh-Gilead, you said, no, but a king shall reign over us. That's how we're going to get rescued, even though the Lord was your king. Now this is kind of jumbling up the chronology as we've known it so far, right, they requested a king before Nahash came onto the scene, but he's using Nahash as a representative example of the rebellious nature of the people. They're in trouble, and what do they want? Not God, they want a king like the nations. One, one scholar says this was an act of unfaithfulness and treason, revealing how little they were aware of their spiritual privileges and of the Lord's past intervention And I was thinking, isn't it interesting how the human condition can unite people who are separated by oceans, separated by cultures, and separated by thousands and thousands of years, right? Because on the one hand, you might think that we 21st century Christians, many of us Westerners, have nothing in common with a people like the ancient Israelites. We might think that on the one hand. But on the other hand, does this not sound terribly like us? Right? That we are little aware of our spiritual privileges and of the Lord's past intervention. Isn't that you and me? Right? The objection that the Bible is outdated and irrelevant is disproven the moment you realize the Bible is written about humanity. Humans, we don't change, right? Human nature doesn't change. When it comes down to it, our hopes, our fears, our struggles, our sins... Our needs are the same today as they were the moment Adam took that fateful bite from the forbidden fruit. And so what we're reading here is Samuel confronts the people with their sin. Is God confronting us with our sin? God confronting us with the fallenness of human nature. The great plight of the believers that we still forget the Lord's kindness and provision and all the spiritual privileges that are ours. You know, this is one of the blessings of coming frequently, as our book of church order, as the Westminster Directory uh, calls us to, coming frequently to the Lord's Supper, as we will tonight. Right? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And sometimes people say, well, if we do it too often, it won't be special. You're forgetting how often you forget. Right? That's, that's part of the problem. We forget how often we forget. We need those reminders because we're so weak. Well, there needs to be a change for Israel. Samuel doesn't want them to presume on having... Uh, a king as though that's going to solve their problems their primary issue you see isn't with the surrounding nations it's with the omnipresent god their primary issue isn't being at odds with these nations like the philistines and the ammonites their primary issue is being at odds with their maker with him and so samuel warns them of god's judgment in an unforgettable way you look now at verse 16 check out what happens here He's saying, stand still, see the great thing that the Lord will do. This is what's going to happen to you, he's saying. If you do not change, if you persist in your sin, if you do not repent, there's going to be judgment from the sky, right? It's the wheat harvest. Translation, it's the driest time of the year. You're not going to expect rain, but what's God going to do in a moment? He's going to send rain. There's going to be thunder. There's going to be lightning. What's the point? The point is this. If, um, if the dry season can't escape God sending rain, then you and I can't escape God sending judgment. That's the warning. That's the warning. Samuel's trying to prevent the nation from assuming, well, we have a king, so we're good. And I want to prevent you from thinking, well, I have a church, so I'm good. Or I have a, a Christian family, so I'm good. Fill in the blank, right? I do good things. So, I, you know, it's, we're, me and God, we're on good terms. God wants something far more than just your church attendance or your giving or your charity. He wants your heart. He wants your piety. He wants your Obedience, And if he doesn't get it, don't expect anything less than this judgment that's pictured here. That's what Samuel is saying. It's a hard word. Let me just slow down and and acknowledge this is a hard word from the prophet. If you don't rebel or if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen, right? Judgment. That's hard. And it's hard for us to hear. It is hard for us to hear God's word when it confronts us with our sin and reminds us of the reality of God's judgment. That's a difficult thing to swallow. What do we do with that when we're confronted with the difficulty of of God's word? There's really only one of three things you can do. Okay, so when God calls us to repent and calls out our sin, when you read that in the scriptures, there's only one of three responses. Here they are. I'll try to do this briefly. The first thing is that you could reject it entirely. That's the unbeliever's response to say, I don't believe any of this. This is ridiculous. This, this, is, this is bunk. This doesn't apply to me, to reject God's word. There's a second danger, which might be more prevalent for people in our circles, that is people who claim to be Christians, which is to reinterpret God's word, to say, well, yeah, I see that there, but I believe in a God of love, right? A God who doesn't, doesn't judge us for, for, you know, we all make mistakes, and he's He's kind, he's gracious, he's on our side. And so we read passages and then we kind of reinterpret through this lens that we've fabricated that says God never, ever punishes sin. And that's, the, that, that's not far different from rejecting God's word. That's worldliness seeping into the church. Uh, David Wells, who was a professor for many years at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, says this about worldliness. He says, worldliness is that system of values in any given age, Which has as its center our fallen human perspective. Not God's perspective, our perspective. Which displaces God and his truth from the world. And here it is. Listen to what David Wells says. This is worldliness. And it is that which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. So we are confronted with passages that call out sin for what it is. And we say, I don't really like that because I like sin to to feel normal and comfortable. It's the idea of antinomianism, right? Rejecting God's law. It's the idea of abusing Christian liberty. People who can't bear the demands of obedience and holiness. And instead they say that the grace of the gospel is such that they can live any way they want. And those passages where God calls us to repentance don't apply anymore. They've reinterpreted it. Here's the hard truth. If you don't like the God that the Bible presents you don't like God. You can't manufacture him. You can't can't reshape him. You can't reinterpret him. And it's a far more intellectually honest position to take, to just say, well, I just don't like him, than to attempt to make up your own version of him. Well, there's a third possibility when you come across these passages that call for, for us to take sin seriously, God's judgment seriously. You could reject it, you could reinterpret it, or you could repent. And that, of course, is the only proper response and i want you to know that when god reveals your sin he does not do it primarily to make you feel guilty when god reminds you of his judgment he does not do that primarily to make you scared he does it primarily because he loves you and he wants you back that's why he does it god isn't interested in guilt tripping he's interested in restoring a right relationship between himself and his people. I want you to know that repentance is not about you losing anything. It's about you gaining something, and that is a deeper relationship with God. So Israel makes a step in the right direction, don't they? We look now at verse 19. We pick up there after Samuel is warned of judgment. The people say to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we've added to all our sins this evil that we've asked for a king. A couple of things to notice. In that response, first, they recognize that their sins have just continued to pile up. It's not like they are getting better and better as time goes on. No, it's actually the opposite. They've gotten worse and worse. Second, they realize that their sin is worthy of condemnation. They say that we may not die. The wages of sin is death. Israel recognizes it. Third, and most importantly, they recognize that their only hope is not in themselves, but in a mediator. Their hope is in a mediator. You see, when you understand how sinful you really are, when you realize the penalty of death that hangs over you, you'll realize that do better is not an option. You'll need someone else. They cried out for Samuel, please keep praying for us. You and I need someone else. His name is Jesus. Samuel promises to continue... uh, Uh, interceding for them is the third aspect of the speech. The first is that he vindicates past leadership. The second is that he confronts persistent sin. Third, he promises continued mercy. You see, their hope rests in God's mercy, not their merit. I think the most interesting verse in this entire section is verse 20. Would you look there, please? Here's where Samuel promises continued mercy. They said, we don't want to die. Please keep praying for us. And he says, don't be afraid. You have done all this evil. What? How would that make the people not afraid? That would make me more afraid, right? You come to God and you say, please help me. I I need help. And he says, don't be afraid. You're actually as, as vile as you think, even worse so. what? How is this good news? What Samuel is doing here is he's magnifying the mercy of God by not downplaying the sinfulness of man. Here's his message. Cheer up, you're worse than you think, but God is greater than you could ever imagine. That's what he's saying here. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, but this God that you're coming to is a God who accepts you even so. A God whose mercy is greater than your sin. And we see that greatness of God's mercy in verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it's pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Why will God not forsake his people? Because of his character, his namesake. This is who he is, his reputation, we could say, his unchanging character. One of the greatest assurances that we have in this life, that once God has begun a good work, he will see it to completion. But in addition to the unchanging character of God, the people are assured of Samuel's ongoing intercession. Verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Well, that is something. Make, make no doubt about it. To have this, this figure who's sort of acting as a priest saying, I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm going to keep pleading the mercies of God on your behalf. That is something. But that's not everything because we get to chapter 25, what happens? Samuel's prayers stop because his heart stops. He's dead. He can't keep doing it anymore. And what a greater hope you and I have, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, that is to say, because he lives forever. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, for he always lives to make intercession for them. This is what he does. He always lives to intercede. Well, finally, and very uh, briefly here as we come to a close. Okay, I lied. Maybe not very briefly, but we are coming to a close. The final aspect of Samuel's speech, the fundamental aspect of it, is a demand... For uncompromising obedience, he demands uncompromising obedience. You might think that assuring them of God's gracious character and even His own intercessory ministry uh, that would that would kind of sort of loosen up the whole holiness thing. After all, why worry about obedience to such an obsessive extent when God has promised to be gracious? Well, nowhere in the Bible does that logic hold. Nowhere. Uh, the practical. Theology found in both Testaments is this. It is God's gracious character and his abundant mercy that induces us to obe- obedience all the more. right? Because he's forgiving, because he's long-suffering. And it's there in verse 24. Here's the logic of the Scriptures. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. I think you could camp out on that verse your whole life. It's like, give me a Christian ethic, pastor. How, how, how am I to live? Fear the Lord. Serve Him faithfully with all your heart. And then this next part, right? For consider all the great things the Lord has done for you. The work of God is the great motivation for Christians in their work. But it's not easy work, let's be honest. God is after the whole heart. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. He he doesn't want some of your love. He demands all of it. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart. uh, Whose hearts are pure like like water from a spring is pure. It doesn't have additives. It doesn't have chemicals. It's just pure, undiluted, undivided devotion that God is after. A, A divided heart is a defective heart. He wants the whole heart. God wants it all. I was so privileged this past week taking my final doctoral class in Charlotte to sit under the teaching of Ligon Duncan, the chancellor of RTS and um, a preacher for 25 plus years at First Pres, Jackson, Mississippi. And he made this one passing comment. He said that, um, talking about covenant theology and the covenant of grace and all that God has done for us in the gospel. And he says, the gospel is the free gift That will cost you everything. It's the free gift that will cost you everything. Your whole heart. All your desires. All your affections. All your interests. All your activities. And that's not asking too much. How could it be asking too much when you consider what great things he has done for you? God has given you his very heart. His only begotten son. And now he demands that you give him your heart as well. Forsake your sin. Repent of your ways. Turn to God. Today is the day of salvation. But that day is going fast. So we look at the very final verse. We would have loved it, right, if it had ended in verse um, uh, 23. Right? That, that, that sounds positive to us. Uh, Verse 24, only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully, for consider what great things he's done for you, right? Let's move on to the next chapter. Nope, we have verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Again, here's a warning against being complacent just because they have a king like the nations, as though that king's going to handle everything for them. The king might be able to save them from their enemies, but that king cannot save them from God. The king can't save them from God. Notice here the king will be swept away in judgment just like the people. You shall be swept away, both you and your king. It's an interesting image. Samuel is saying that it's possible that the disobedience of the people could be so great that it's like a flash flood that comes through and takes out everything in town. Their sin could take out not only themselves, but even their king. Don't, be, don't hide behind this king. And isn't it fascinating how that all gets flipped around with the coming of Christ? Now the, the direction is the exact opposite. Hide behind this king. Flee to him. For he is such that it's not that our sinfulness will sw- uh, sweep him away, but rather that his righteousness sweeps us away. It takes us with him. It covers us. We go together, just as Samuel said, you and your king. You will go the way of your king. Who is your king today? Make your king, King Jesus. Go with him, and you will find his righteousness is more than enough to get you through this pilgrim way and into glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word that we have read that has been preached and that you would write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you help us to live in such a way that we give you everything that we have, that we give you an uncompromising obedience, that which you've demanded even in the portion of scripture that we've read today. We thank you that our hope is not in our obedience, but in the obedience of another. King Jesus, so help us to flee to him and indeed give everything to him. We prayed in his name. Amen.